In our last episode, we explored the past via the Seattle Commons Project. Today, we're going to blast forward into the future. We're going to look at alternative visions and realities of Seattle's neighborhoods. In our driver's seat is Bradley Corey, principal of B9 Architects. Bradley and his firm have been recognized for innovative design and commitments to sustainability. He's the principal architect behind many of the new buildings popping up across our neighborhoods, places like Capitol Hill, Queen Anne Hill, the Central Area, Wallingford, Fremont, and more. Communities with names like Ship Street Apartments, Urban Canyon, Franklin Row Houses, and so forth, as well as some massive mixed-use buildings near Seattle University called First Central Station. I'm Edward Craigsman, and you're listening to EK on the Go. Today, we'll look at the factors shaping the appearance of so many of Seattle's neighborhoods from the perspective of someone who's actually designing them, how Seattle's building and land use code shapes new developments, perhaps in ways that are unfavorable as well as favorable. We'll explore uh, new initiatives to create housing affordability through upzoning and developer incentives, and we'll explore the responsibilities felt by architects and developers for the broader good and how these agents of change in our neighborhoods address these responsibilities. So join us as we explore what Seattle's neighborhoods will look like and feel like once all the cranes that are reshaping them have come down. Hey, Bradley. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Awesome to have you. Um, I've known you for many years. So I'm just curious, how long have you lived here in Seattle? I moved here in 2001 in August, so it's just past 17 years. It's the longest place I think I've lived in my life. Where did you move from? Uh, A couple different places previously, most recently was San Francisco and New York, uh, figuring out where to be. Awesome. And I think of you as like a really quintessential um, architect developer for our neighborhood. So I'm curious what neighborhoods you've occupied since you've lived in Seattle. The first uh, few years I moved, I think 10 or 12 times, and I kept all my boxes and finally threw them all away about a year ago. Um, I've lived in Queen Anne, Central District. I've lived in other parts of the, the region uh, in Bellevue for a brief time, and I uh, have settled now in the central area right close to Capitol Hill. And then what got you started in architecture? How did the interest evolve? I think it was Legos and blocks at age eight. Awesome. Um, somehow, and my son is now eight going on nine, and it's kind of staggering to realize at that age I had a very clear picture. Um, I like to draw. I like to make things. Uh, I like math. I like science. I didn't like other topics very much. And so those were the things I was really drawn to and adding them together and architecture just seemed an obvious path. I had no examples to have drawn from. Great. And how has it turned out? I mean, I have my dream job, right? Uh And I think that's what I would hope most people would look for in, in any profession or exploit that they do. Architecture for me is definitely an extension of self a little bit. Uh, maybe too much so at times, where it, it can take away from other things I might be choosing to do or to put it aside. But it's always been about creating. Okay. And I yeah. see our signs pretty much everywhere I drive around in all neighborhoods. So I'm just curious. Your firm is pretty busy. We're very busy. So you're riding the boom of the economy. Yeah, we've right. grown. We're now 11 people. We've been a little bigger. Uh, we've been a lot smaller. Uh, we were as small as one, um, me here. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, The growth process was one that was driven by the work and by um, a desire to participate in helping create what's happening here in our neighborhoods. We do a lot of development. We do single family, and then we develop some of our own projects as well. And how many projects would you say you work on or you're involved in every year? 50 or more. Wow. Okay. 
Yeah. Uh, and, and there are various stages. So some might be finished in construction, some might be feasibility studies, but there's probably 20 or 30 active at a given time. Yeah. Great. At the beginning of the show, I always ask our guests to share with us a place that inspires them or it's significant to them, perhaps in the Northwest, and was wondering if you had any you wanted to share. Yeah, I can pick one here. I, I really feel like uh, I'm drawn to the natural settings here, which is interesting given what we just discussed. I can remember first arriving and wondering how we didn't have more uh, vehicular issues on the roads because there's so much incredible, beautiful, pristine nature here. I'm really drawn to Deception Pass as one of those places. Mm. And it, it's kind of the counter to the urban work that we do and the kind of urban motivation that I have. Certainly quiet and water and mountains um, are a thing that are, they resonate. And for our listeners who haven't been to Deception Pass, how far away is it and where is it? It's about an country? hour and a half north of the city. You can get to it by driving straight or by ferrying, driving ferrying and continuing to drive. In an interview with the AIA, um, of which you are a member, um, you were asked, what do you hope to contribute to the world? And you said to change the world. So I'm just curious, how does architecture change the world, or at least how does that show up for you in your practice? So I think there's a couple of ways to deal. I think you can either be a practitioner and produce work, um, I think you can be in teaching and help produce sort of next generation of thinking. Um, I think you can be an advocate and get involved in conversations about things that are critical now and in the future. I think you can make your own work. And so we, I do all of those things. So I teach at the UW. It's, it's been a few years. Uh, as we've gotten busier, I focused on the work. I plan to return and teach within the architectural school. I'm teaching primarily design studios. Mm-hmm. I was president of the AIA a few years back and really got heavily involved in advocating for things that I saw the city really needing attention be paid to, whether it was a waterfront or design review. And then creating my own work scratches something I can't get at just by working for others. Mm -hmm. I can be more intentional about having my values be present in the work. So creating your own work, just to clarify, is you work for developers as an architect Right. right. They're your clients. And then by your own work, are you talking about developments that you're taking on? Developments funding? that I, I have taken on, uh, funded, and hired someone to build, or I've actually partnered with a client of ours uh, at, at B9, who then we we design, they build, and we co-develop. Okay, so that's so interesting. So it scratches a different itch than you would when working for another. So can you like put a finer point on what that is? Like, What is the difference developing a project that you're fully responsible for versus for another? I mean, I think there's two very obvious ones that come to mind. One is I get very intimate with the risks that our clients take on, and I try to communicate that to my staff so they understand that anybody that comes in the door at any point in the day who's going to hire us is taking a risk. Um, They're going to spend their own dollars. So I see myself, whether it's a developer or a single-family homeowner or restaurateur or continue on down the line organization, um, so I get to identify with that and, and take that risk on. And that makes me make decisions in a more meaningful way when I work with my clients Mm -hmm. because I understand where they're coming from. Empathy. Uh, And then the other certainly is no one's going to be able to be limiting what it is that is done on the site except for myself or myself and my partner on that. Mm -hmm. And so we make decisions about things that are value-based. And I know a lot of developers make decisions that are value-based. Some make decisions that are more Mm financial-based. You have to balance those things in any good project. Um, but for us, environmental, sustainability, uh, stewardship, community, higher quality execution are things that I would say we've done better in projects where we've been our own clients. Okay. And what's a project that you are a client? We could just talk about some specifics that, that you're proud of or enjoy. 
projects we are doing ourselves for yourselves or for yourselves um so there's uh one we've called soul house uh, we're actually going to be presenting it at the northwest eco building guild sustainability slam that's a mouthful awesome uh, that's in a few weeks uh, at the university of washington and it's 10 townhouse units around a common courtyard parking is below grade and we created uh, i think a unique mix of units where they're all somewhat unique um, they all have access to views uh, we redefine property boundaries to uh, enable ourselves to have more flexibility in how we, because we had two lots, in how we actually produced the, the site planning. And then we used uh, passive house strategies for the envelope, passive house uh, windows, high quality exterior insulation, air sealing um, to be very, very sustainable. We didn't certify it, but that was for other reasons. Okay, and certified meaning a... We didn't certify it with Passive House. It was certified with other third-party built green. Yep, great. Yeah. Um, on your um, website, b9architects.com? Yes. Did I get that right? Yes. You say that your firm focuses on pedestrian-focused site planning to reduce the importance of automobiles yes. for the community. And then I I think it's interesting that you've also then sort of charged your staff to bicycle to work. And so it's a kind of an interesting personal choice that's right. sort of reflected in your work. And I was just curious... What areas of your work is informed by sort of personal decisions about your own lifestyle? Because interesting that you sort of called out that specific thing. Uh, lately, it's been where the television goes in the units. Uh, people ask the question, where's the TV going to go? And I have to admit that I don't have one. And I have to say, okay, well, why don't you tell us where you really think is the best place for it? Okay. You're going to be better at identifying that than I might. Um, you know, I might watch on my laptop if I'm going to watch something. Mm -hmm. Um, and again, it's a value-based decision. So I've, I took a car to go here today. I rode yep. my bike to work. Yep. Uh, if I didn't have to come presentable, I might've ridden my bike here. It's not terribly sure. far from Pioneer Square. Um, we have bike parking for five bikes in the back. And at times we've had as many as seven or eight in the office. And it really depends on, um, each individual's interest in okay. coming, but we have people that have come to work at B9 and then gone out and bought a bike. And I can't really say how that parallel happens, uh -huh. but, um, we're really driven by it. Um, Any other choices that you sort of charge your staff with in terms of their personal lifestyles that somehow then shows up or reflects back into the work? I feel like, I mean, B9 is organized in a way to allow others to have opportunity to design, to have a voice. And so hopefully it's them bringing who they are into the environment uh, more than me telling them uh, a particular thing. I mean, we are flexible in terms of our hours to a certain degree and as our office has grown, ideally it's been a voice of a bunch of people and not just mine that's helped guide it. It is benign. It's not named after me. Got it. Uh, intentionally to Good. be broader. Okay. And, and cars are kind of an interesting topic because when I go to community meetings around development, it's very contentious where there, some of the stalwarts and communities are really concerned about congestion and more cars coming in, more density. And then I'd say many of the people moving to Seattle just don't like cars, want cars like yourself. You don't, you just took a car to go here and right. bicycle. And so- I'm wondering where you see sort of that divide. Is is it a generational issue? Is it uh, people that have lived here a long time versus newcomers as it relates to sort of how buildings get developed to accommodate yeah. the cars? Um, so a, a little history on Seattle. We had a large part of the development that's gone on in the last six, seven, eight years has been in the low-rise zones. Uh, and for folks listening, that's three to four stories, uh, townhouses and apartments. And prior to 2010, there were no new apartment developments in that zone because there was a parking requirement and there was no way to solve it financially where the project could actually withhold uh, the parking on site without spending a lot of money. 
And parking is very expensive to add to projects. It's very. If, if you want to do an apartment building, you have to put it underground or you don't do it at all. Got it. It's very hard to deal with that grade because of other uh, desires, requirements, maximize performance of your project in terms of rentable space, sellable space. So we were seeing a lot of townhouses as a result. When the code changed to remove the parking requirement, urban centers, urban villages in 2010, uh, we saw a huge change in how the city started developing, particularly in those zones. And our office had a number of apartments in that zone that were four stories with basements, no parking, close to transit, areas where I think people would want to walk. Uh, they might have a car. My sort of bias around it is having grown up in New Jersey, having lived in New York and Boston and San Francisco, and having not had a car much of my life, and then having had a car in an urban environment, not Seattle, and realizing it was my responsibility to find a place to put it, not the city's to create a place for me to put it mm -hmm. on the street. And so coming here to Seattle, I moved here with a car, and I've dealt with whatever it meant in terms of parking in Queen Anne, having to drive around in circles, or parking where I live now, where there's generally decent street parking in the Central District. Um, our projects, I think, uh, have an awareness around pedestrians being more important than cars, though recognizing that you have to provide place for cars. Uh, I did a development with one of our clients back in 2012, and it was one of the first projects finishing after the recession had ended, mm -hmm. and it was a townhouse project in Capitol Hill, and we said, no parking, we're going to try it. And it was an eye-opener for us because we had to then find cars, space for cars, very, very close by, within a block where people could rent a stall before we could actually sell those units. Mm. Whereas in my past, living in other cities, I would walk five blocks mm. or more to mm. pay to park the car or to find a spot on the street. Um, I think Seattle's going to have to deal better uh, with being willing to kind of monetize that area on the street. They're talking uh, about surge parking, surge traffic fees and so forth and tolling downtown. So it looks like we're headed politically. There may, sort of there may be other ways where I think that would work better. I mean, densification is going to be the best way because uh, if you don't have a place to put your car, you might not get in it. You might leave it where it's parked. Mm -hmm. uh, Seinfeld did a, a great episode on that uh, many years back. So we need to think better about how we're going to move simply rather than having politics drive how we operate. Got it. So looking at your work, you have done a lot of townhouse projects over the years. Yes. And I was just wondering why, in your opinion, are we building so many townhouses? You know, does that occur in other cities? What's with all the new townhouses? Ballard is a great example right now. Uh, I would say every sort of in-city neighborhood is uh, experiencing a lot of growth due to this type. Our single-family neighborhoods, I think, are at the heart of this to a certain degree, as well as a growing city and people wanting to own. We have about 65% of our city's landmass is single-family, and 7, 8, 10, 12% is this low-rise zone, depending on how you look at it. And so a lot of those townhomes are going into a very, very small area within the city. Um, I think if we were willing to look at something uh, within our single-family zones, and it's been discussed, and I know it'll keep being discussed, but again, it's a challenge for people, I think, who have been here and are absorbing the growth versus people who are coming here and part of the growth to understand that there are probably some very contextual ways. Some might think are rather radical solutions, but there are contextual ways to add density in single-family without changing the way the zone operates completely. So are you referring to, I think there's an initiative to allow, to upzone single-family areas to allow backyard cottages that are not day-dues but could be 
where the whole property could be turned into a duplex? Even more than that, potentially. So today, uh, a dadu, a backyard cottage, cannot be sold off unless it's made into a condominium on the land. So you'd have to be able to divide the land to do that, um, much the way you can divide the land to sell off a townhouse. It's called the unit lot subdivision. You're not changing the land. You're creating a unit lot that that unit sits on uh, for purposes of fee simple uh, purchase. Uh, it would be more looking at the fact that at block ends in the single-family zones, you have two, three, four houses more than you might on the same area of land if you turn the corner mm. and you go into the middle of the block. And so throughout Capitol Hill and Wallingford and Queen Anne and Fremont, we have great examples of 2,000-square-foot lots, 3,000-square-foot lots that were there before zoning that have a very you know reasonable-sized home, mm-hmm. not small, not large, that... I think we could start to do by allowing a different mode of thinking in the single family zones. You could also make that dad do something you could sell uh, or rent as it is today. Uh, And then theoretically you could go further. So you could say, what what else could you do with a block end? Could you take the two, three, four houses that are there away and build in something more dense, um, but minimize the amount of area that you could build, minimize the proximity you can get to the single family houses behind it. Everything would have to be street-facing, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could create a little bit more urban experience on the ends of the blocks that are, you know, 200 feet of frontage, 240 feet of frontage. You can get row houses, for instance, or townhouses. So let's talk about row houses. So that's, I understand, is like a new term, a relatively new term in terms of the what can be allowed under the code to be developed? In Seattle. For Seattle, yeah. yeah it's very, so it's very can you talk here. a little bit about the politics and how that row house sort of emerged out of the sort of townhouse? Absolutely. So, I mean, it, it's prevalent in other places, right? Uh, East Coast cities, West Coast cities, outside of America, a row house is a predominant housing type. We don't have them in Seattle until recently. We didn't have them until recently. And why is that? They weren't allowed. Okay. I shouldn't say they weren't allowed. There wasn't a definition for it. So I think the townhouse typology, which in the past, and we haven't done these in our practice, maybe it was called a four-pack or a six-pack or an eight-pack, that was driven by a zoning diagram. Front setback, rear setback, emulating single-family, Side setbacks, emulating single family, separations between structures, that's in the multifamily code, and then figuring out a place to put the car. So you ended up with buildings in the front and buildings in the back and cars kind of everywhere. The row house says there's nothing behind it. It fronts the street and there's nothing at its rear. And so it's a perfect typology for a block and where the lot is 30, 40, 50, 60 feet in depth, um, you could put a house with nothing behind it and not be giving something up. Um, in 2010, the low-rise code was updated after a five-year effort, uh, which I was part of advocating for change. And the conversation that was had with council, city council, and staff at the city departments was instead of reacting to what we were getting, which was these not very good townhouse developments, what do we actually want to have? And so rural houses actually grew out of that as a typology the city thought would be great. Um, so they incentivized them by removing density limits for row houses by reducing side setbacks, actually to zero for a brief period. Now it's three and a half feet instead of five feet for a townhouse. And up until July, having them not have to go through design review. So today they have to go through design review. So I think they'll be less advantaged than they were previously mm-hmm. um, due to some of these other impacts. Uh, we didn't see a lot of them, but, but we did a bunch in our practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a benefit to having a unit face and engage the street and having a backyard. Instead of having cars behind it mm-hmm. and another row of units. 
Which creates a lot of useless space that doesn't feel good. And it's generally asphalt, and it's it's not obvious where you'd come and go as a pedestrian walking down that driveway. Um, so in our work, we try to put the car at the back, underneath. If we bring it in, we pave that ground differently. We use permeable pavers. We use drivable grass. And we make it into a courtyard where kids or parents could actually play and not have to only be where the cars go. Mm-hmm. I mean, design can influence how we behave. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what this shows. If you pave it in asphalt and it looks like a car belongs there, people aren't going to go there. Mm-hmm. Right. It's always fascinating. So in places like San Francisco, you have these incredible, all these row houses and these really incredible sort of internal courtyards inside the buildings. You have light wells that bring light into them. Uh, and then you have these very private sort of garden backyards. The units are very long and they're fairly wide. So I don't know that our plating is set for it here. Okay. But the ones that we've done... They feel and operate like a townhouse. They just front the street and there's nothing behind them. Got it. Okay. So the city is growing more vertical. Do you think we should be allowing in in the neighborhoods even taller buildings? I mean, absolutely. Ideally, if we're going to invest all this money in this great transit, we need to get more vertical, at least around our light rail stations. Um, I know part of the up zone that you mentioned before around single family is looked at within the urban villages and urban centers um, as part of this future affordability uh, agenda that the city has. We have great examples of verticality outside of Seattle that we can look at. What areas? Well, I mean, just, you don't even have to go that tall. You know, if, if people get concerned about a three or a four-story building, yet we all love going to parts of Europe where buildings are five and six stories, sure. yep. uh, it creates a very, you know, distinct streetscape. There's detail in those buildings that we're not getting in our projects today, and I think that's part of why we would react against them. But I think more verticality, what you're talking about, is what's happening in South Lake Union and in downtown and in First Hill and other areas where we are actually rezoning with intention, U District, um, the base of Queen Anne. But we want to put density where people have access to things that are going to make livability better, where there's schools, where there's open space and jobs. And so ideally, you're putting it where people already are choosing to be or going to be where the city has, has focused that growth. I'm not proposing verticality in, you know, single family zones. I w- sure. where, where I've said you could have more density there, I think it still has to fit three and four stories. Okay, got it. Yeah. So there's currently debate between planners and community over the MHA, the mandatory housing affordability. And so can you explain what the what MHA is in a nutshell and kind of what all the fuss is about politically? Yeah, so our city has had incentive zoning for a long time. And the incentive zoning was located in very specific neighborhoods, South Lake Union, downtown, First Hill. And as a result, those are the areas that were bearing the potential for further funding affordable housing through market rate projects. Uh, Most of the affordable housing that occurs in Seattle today is through subsidies and through affordable housing developers that are generally nonprofits. And there's an amount of money that they have access to And that's created through the levies that we have uh, and other taxing sources, uh, funding sources. Mandatory housing affordability would be something in addition to both of those. It would, I think, look to replace incentive zoning in some ways, and it would be required. That requirement would come with an up zone um, that is intended to offset the additional cost of providing the affordable housing. And the up zone, as I understand, is developers can add an extra level to buildings or it, it, it depends, depends on, on, the area. on the area. So there's some where it's an extra level, there's some where it's maybe extra two or three. And the proposed requirement of the mandatory housing affordability also varies. Okay. So 
Uh, it's actually really complicated. It's tailored to neighborhood and existing zone? I think it's tailored to potential value. Okay. So if there's a thought that uh, Queen Anne or Capitol Hill might be more high-cost areas to live in than somewhere else, the cost to provide affordable housing there would be higher. The percentage you'd have to provide there might be higher um, to offset that higher cost of living already present. So you are designing lots of new buildings, and the question is, who who is the customer? Who are we designing these buildings for? I mean, I think it's changed over time. Um, we've done work with a lot of fantastic developers who have come to us and had either very clear ideas about what they wanted or just simply said, you know, we want a certain number of units. You know, what can you do for us? Um, and in each case, our firm has designed what we think is appropriate given the level of feedback we're getting from the client. In the early 2000s, I feel like the buyers were people we had a greater understanding of than we might today. Okay. Uh, there's a lot more growth happening in the last bunch of years than happened to, you know, happened then, even though there was a lot of growth certainly occurring then. At least it felt that way at the time. I feel like a number of the buyers previous to this current growth were couples, couples who had a number of uh, degrees, whether it was be you know, professional degrees or not, maybe had one child. Um, I think we saw straight couples, gay couples, gay singles, straight singles. It was, it was everybody across the board, but generally it was people with enough money from their work that they could afford these units. Today, the prices of the units have gone up so much, so quickly, it's hard for me to know who it is that's buying it now. I think we have money coming from outside of Seattle. Uh, we're seeing a lot more cash purchases um, I think people are buying these and turning them into rentals. And you still have occupants, but I think generally we are designing for who we think those people are. Mm -hmm. And it, it's it's possible that they're, you know, they're not all looking for the same thing. Um, but I think what makes our work a little different, we've talked about before, is we minimize the car, but we put a place for it. Prioritize the person, the pedestrian. Prioritize an idea about community by creating spaces for people to occupy together. Before 2010... That happened more than it probably happens now. I think people are a bit more private and using their units more as their home. And the courtyard's maybe a place to come and go through rather than a place to share. I'm sure that will change again. Over time, people do, um, you know, come out and, and engage in those spaces. I think the row house typology is also different. And it, it, it's the same buyer, but uh, they get to have a slightly different experience. There's nobody living uh, in the rear mm -hmm. of their property. Okay. And then what other new features, um, what what are uh, buyers or tenants sort of requesting that are new or whether it's technology, floor plan, space layout, any changes that you're seeing? We will generally respond to the site. And so our clients may ask us, you know, uh, I feel like since we've got such amazing views, put living on the top floor, on the second floor instead of on the ground level. And I think that's always a question um, because when you split up the bedroom floors with the living in the middle, I think it does cater who the buyer could be. It's probably not a couple with a young child mm -hmm. uh, at that given time. Um, I mean, we're seeing, I think, higher quality buildings, hopefully uh, more attention to building performance. But that's, you know, it's, it's a small percentage, I think, of the townhouses that are getting built. I think we're fortunate enough to get to do a number of those. We have always focused on large windows. And that's a thing that people come to us and say, we love the amount of light in your units. You know, that's something we're really interested in. 
Um, roof decks have become uh, kind of mandatory and popular. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they're actually utilized. Mm-hmm. So they're ever, on every townhouse today. We've reacted to it a bit at our practice and have talked about the fact that I don't want every unit to look like it has a roof deck, even though it might. You know, how do we design a building that's going to feel more residential given that we might be drawn to that on a given site? And so we don't have a parapet wrapping the roof. We might have a roof overhang, and then the deck is hidden behind that. Yeah. It seems like it rains so much here that people may not be using these outdoor spaces that are uncovered, right? Uh, certainly a few months out of the year, I think they have the potential, mm-hmm. but not as much as mm-hmm. one might. Uh, we like to put in covered decks where we can, where you can make spaces more usable throughout the year. I think we've seen more desire to have three-bedroom units instead of two-bedroom units. We Why used to do a lot of two-bedrooms and a media. Mm-hmm. And again, I think it's the perception that that's what people might want, even though I'm we're hearing that it might still just be an office or a media room. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at least the potential you could grow into that townhouse and not need to go find a third bedroom when you have a roommate or a second child. Or And then the, there's this constant criticism of townhomes as being sort of the functionality because of the verticality. Yes. Um, it just, it does, it's not a good example of universal design. And I don't know, how, is, that, is that solvable in any way? Because it's sort of a function of just a vertical space is, has stairs. I think one of the things that I think we've noticed having done our own work is that if you're going to buy land and you're going to build a townhouse, you have to build three floors because a land price related to what you're going to invest to build related to what you're going to end up with at the end of the day, you have to build all the floors to be able to make it pencil as a development. Um, It is not great for universal design. Uh, We just finished the basement in our house, which effectively turned our home into a three-story structure. And I'm experiencing that. And I, you know, I think it's great if you're an active person to have stairs to go up and down, but certainly if your living is on the top level and your parking is in the garage or basement at the bottom, you've got three or four floors to ascend with your groceries. It's a question. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've had some clients ask us to put in dumbwaiters. You know, some have talked about future proofing for elevators. So someone could have that down the road, but um, I think the townhouse will always be vertical due to some of these things I've mentioned and it's going to be a place that people are primarily walking. Now, MHA is upzoning a lot of those three-story zones to four stories and expect them to still be townhouses. And I wonder if that'll really be what occurs. We do some. Uh, they might be three stories with a loft. Some of them are actually four floors. Um, but it, it's in the NC zones today where it doesn't make sense to build a mixed-use building. There's not a lot of it. So one question that comes to mind is that, because you also mentioned this trend, there's a lot of investors, a lot of people are not necessarily occupying their home in these townhome zones. You know, what about the notion of having like a duplex, like a two units that occupy a townhome? Right. Is that even possible under the code? And would that be a benefit because then people would have flexibility in terms of their use and maybe depending on the the topography yeah. and how the access occurs Maybe less vertical because you'd have two homes. Right. I, I think it's a brilliant idea. I think it's how row houses are broken up in other cities. You know, it's not always a brownstone where someone has all stories. Uh, I lived in flats in Boston and in San Francisco uh, where you would have a floor within a building. And I was part of advocating, as I mentioned before, for an updated, better low-rise code, multifamily code, I should say. When they get rid of the density limit and we ended up with no parking. And the density limit in these are urban village areas, right? In in the low-rise zones, it was low-rise 2 or low-rise 3. You would have no density limit if you did certain things. The Got city it. wanted green building, put the cars in a, in a place where they weren't visible. Uh, those are two of the main main ones. I took access from an alley if you had an alley. 
I thought that meant we would have flats here and you would have walk-ups and you'd have people living on different levels within the same townhouse or row house. And I learned that that was not true because they define townhouse and row house to say you could only have one accessory dwelling within a townhouse or a row house, mm. much like you can in a single family house today. You can have an accessory dwelling inside any of those unit types. Um, they're limited in size. And right now there's a parking requirement for them. So uh, today you could not, unless you were willing to make them into an apartment building or condominiums in the future. Okay. So let's shift to advocacy. It was mentioned part of the what motivated you to be an architect, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so you have advocated for more flexible zoning codes. Yes. What's your vision for just holistically for a better code and how might that play out across the city if you had a magic wand? I wish I did. Um, I, I feel like having spent enough time talking with council central staff, city council members, and then city employees, planners, long-range planners at the city departments, we have a lot of process in Seattle and change does not come quickly, though some might think it does. And I understand why they think it does, um, because maybe they're not part of the process that took three to four to five years to get to implementing the change and they just see it all of a sudden. Uh, We have codes that are intended to prevent the worst rather than encourage the best. Um, I do think there are conversations that occur where they do ask, what do we want to have? And I think you can write a code to that. But uh, the code is very, very complicated, and you have to actually be an expert to be able to develop in these zones, um, especially as the simple sites really aren't available anymore. Uh, there's, the sites are much more complicated in terms of topography, access, adjacent neighbors, zoning, environmental critical areas. So I would really like to see a code that was willing to be a little more catered to the places that we're actually working on. Mm-hmm. Um, We have sites where the topography really limits you and there are very specific things in the code that keep you from being able to do something just very normal Mm -hmm. uh, and kind of obvious. Um, There are new legislation that was adopted recently about bicycle parking and it's indoors. Now, I'm a cyclist. I'm an advocate for cycling. And what I'm going to say then hopefully is understood in that realm. Within an apartment building where you could fit it perhaps – it makes a lot of sense. I think most people probably want their bicycle where they live rather than in a shared bike parking space. But if you're doing a townhouse project today, you suddenly have to have one bike parking stall per unit somewhere not in the unit. Mm. And it has to be indoors and it can't be where the cars are. And so it, it just got very complicated without, I think, thinking through how people might actually work or live in those spaces. I think the more flexible the code can be, certainly the better you then maybe need to balance it with discretionary process. And we have that. We have a lot of design review process in Seattle. We now have mandatory public outreach as part of all design review projects. And I think the intention there is to have an early dialogue, but the projects are too early to really have a meaningful dialogue. So mm-hmm. where we have more flexibility, where we can depart from parts of the code, improve the solution is better. Um, we usually get better projects. Uh, and so that tells me that being able to have more of a dialogue around those things seems critical. And there are projects that don't go through design review and then they can't change the code. Mm-hmm. And so you're stuck, I guess, designing to this thing that was intended to prevent the worst. And it's really not encouraging as good a solution as we might hope. We are working outside Seattle and we're seeing that those municipalities are maybe a little easier to deal with. What areas are you working? Lake Stevens, uh, parts of Island County, uh, Bellevue. Mokaltillo, Edmonds, and projects are in early stages for some of them. Some mm-hmm. have moved forward and have gone on hold. 
I mean, I think one of the Kirkland, one of the benefits is you get everybody in the room early on. And I, I think you have a dialogue with them as you go. Um, but for us, we've developed really good relationships with the city. I think we can ask questions and we don't understand how something might apply, but you can't change it right then during the project. You, you have to get involved and advocate and spend years encouraging the city to look at it from mm -hmm. a different point of view. So what do you see as the responsibility of the architect and the developer to future generations? So everything is changing so quickly in Seattle and we're designing and building buildings that will probably be here long past we're gone. So how do you take on or, or do you not the responsibility of how these things will fit into the future? I mean, I think we have to. Um, I don't know that we can to the same degree in every project and that's based on a client's, uh, meaning the developer's needs or desires whether it's an apartment building or a house or a townhouse or a row house or an accessory dwelling or an interior remodel of a commercial space, I mean, I think our intention is to always approach it as if we were looking at it for the first time and not to take what we did down the block as a sort of blueprint for what we should do here. Um, I think we look at our context, but we don't try to imitate it. And I know that that may be a struggle for people that don't want to see as much physical, visual change. By context, are the other buildings around? Adjacent buildings, heights of buildings, setbacks of buildings, materials, sizes of windows. You know, we don't feel like we're designing in 1900 or 1920 or 1950 uh, or 1970 or 90s. Uh, we're designing now. And so we want to design a project that learns from the things that our city has gone through over that period of time, learns from current technology, um, ideally, I think that the most critical thing in terms of this is is performance of the building, um, how well it's going to save energy rather than use energy. Um, that's the biggest question, I think, right now for us mm -hmm. as a society. We are experiencing climate change. Uh, we have the opportunity to, to vote, I believe, on how to deal with some of these things around climate change and taxing and uh, how to deal with carbon. And if we keep building as we have been, we're going to find ourselves having a much bigger problem than we currently have. I would like to think about my kids and what are they going to inherit? Uh, and I hope I'm still around when that's occurring. But How does construction re relate to carbon? Building construction is responsible for the largest segment of greenhouse gases in our region. Transportation is second. And um, if we build the way we've been building and I'm not talking about we as in our practice, but generally uh, we're going to end up not making the problem any less. In mm -hmm. fact, we'll probably make it worse. So mm -hmm. being able to find ways for the government to provide incentives to encourage better behavior, better insulation, better windows, better envelopes, so these buildings don't need to be remediated as soon as some of these are. By remediated, you're talking about like wrapping the building and having to rebuild them, basically. Envelope, yep, yeah. Yep, wasting all of that effort, energy, and materials because it just has to go away once it's uh, been damaged due to mold and moisture. But if we if we build better, the buildings will last longer. That's number one. We should be designing buildings that don't look like everything else around them. I would say that's number two. And why why is that, by the way? You're saying everything older around them? Don't try to match. No, don't match anything. I mean, I shouldn't say don't match. Uh, design to the site. Mm -hmm. So be conscious that the design that a developer might have done or an architect might have done that worked really well on one lot, it doesn't maybe work as well here. Uh, don't necessarily design all the units to be identical. Great urban places that we've all been to got built over time. And there are streets that I can think of in the village in New York City where the typology is the same. The row houses, it's on 10th, 10th Street. 
Uh, but every house is just slightly different. You mm-hmm. know, they're a little taller, they're a little shorter, they're a little further forward, the bricks vary. Uh, we like that texture. I think we've lost some of that with the way development has occurred today where every unit is A, 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 A. How do you break that up? How do you create opportunities for difference within that? What pattern? happened, by the way? Because I, you know, I have that experience when I go through so many cities and places that there's so much interest within a square yeah. block of where within a... There's just so much variation, and I would imagine a part of it is just the way in which development has unfolded very slowly over time, or it's a mixture of different eras, right? Uh, I, think it's a, I think it's a mixture of eras. I think it's we have materials today that are so inexpensive that they're the automatic choice. And like hardy panel. Hardy panel, yeah. hardy plank, uh, cedar are the materials that we're seeing predominantly. Um, there are other better materials we could use, but they can't compete cost-wise. And so it's very difficult to convince someone to spend the dollars. And I'd rather have them spend the dollars on two to three inches of a continuous insulation on the outside of the building and make the building perform better, use less energy, and perhaps use a less expensive but resilient durable material Mm -hmm. than maybe always put better materials on the outside and not think about the big picture. We Mm -hmm. have to think about all of it. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a big. I think that's a big complaint right now is what's happening in terms of the similarity between yeah. everything that's being constructed and trying to understand whether it's a, just a function of a boom economy or whether it's, it sounds like it's materials and also just sort of a financial model. I think it's a financial you know? model. I'd love to see more value-based decision-making so around who's, some of these things. So who's making these? So among the developers, you don't need to name names necessarily, but I, it sounds like there's a diversity of um, approaches. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some that inspire you and that you really are really excited to be involved in? The approaches? In terms of like this specific issue yeah. of not making a city yeah. that is where everything's a clone of everything else? We really like to work on corners where possible. Uh, we've got some projects that are finishing now on corners throughout the city that we're excited about. Uh, we've got projects where we've done contract rezones that we're excited about, uh, where through uh, a more a sort of elaborate public process, uh, we're able to provide an understanding of what the building can do by designing it specifically. One that we're really excited about is at the corner of 65th and Roosevelt. Um, it's moving forward slowly at the moment. It's been designed, and due to construction costs, uh, that project is slowed down. For our listeners, that's, that's literally the same block as the new light rail station. It is across the street. Yeah. And the lot's very small. It's less than 3,000 square feet, and so it's a 20-unit, seven-story building. What's the zoning? Uh, it is a, it's a neighborhood commercial uh, with an 85-foot height limit, so... That's a site we're really excited about and have really enjoyed working on. I think due to the smallness of the site, it's being at that sort of center zero adjacent to light rail and and two major streets at an intersection, it's going to be expensive to build because of access and construction costs having gone up so much in the last few years. Um, We hope to see it built soon. I'm excited about the project I told you about before that I co-developed called Soul House uh, just because we get to make decisions that emulate our values and be a kind of test case and have clients come into the office and say, I really like that. What's that? Mm-hmm. Tell me about that. And we can say, oh, well, that's one we did. You know, tell me what you see that you like. And then it helps us further those goals in projects that others are doing, not just ourselves. So for Soul House, then what are like three things that you're doing in terms of the, the program that is different than it might have otherwise been and based on your experience of how you could do better? So the parking's underground which meant it made it very expensive and occurred because of where it's located in Capitol Hill. And the site sloped up from the street. Most 
projects will not spend the money on this. It's $60,000 a car, $50,000 a car to bury it underground. So I understand like in parts of Portland, the city has sort of set up incentives so that entire blocks in the Pearl District and so forth so that parking can be put underground but in a more cross-property manner, mm-hmm. that there's incentives for that. Okay. That probably lowers the cost and creates it, a different street, streetscape. It yeah. makes it more available for others, right? I think because we develop parcel by parcel, it's a little harder to do that here yeah. uh, with the types of projects I'm talking about. Sure. But by putting the cars underground, we made the rest of the ground surface for people to come and go, owners, residents, uh, visitors. We set the units up off the street, so they've all got stoops, which is kind of urban design 101. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, if you can be closer to the street, you want to raise it up to create sort of safety and eyes on the street and purchase. But still neighborliness um, with the stoops. Right? And it's still a place to sit and yeah. engage as people walk by. So, and I think the last certainly was spending a little extra on the envelope and trying to do a, a much better job than others were doing. What's the material? Uh, well, so we did rigid insulation, uh, continuous around the entire building at the roof, under slab, and along all the walls and did a much higher quality window. It's a passive house window from Europe. Um, and then, you know, waterproof with a rain screen, just doing what we're supposed to do here in the Northwest. And then in five years or 10 years, you know, what, how will a city look that's different than now that will maybe surprise our listeners? Uh, my hope is that we unlock the single family zones um, and that we're are more aware of the cost of parking for real. And so today we are equitable only in the manner that people can get access. And so if we were to say that our best schools or our best open spaces are in the single-family zones, which means they're desirable and therefore they're more expensive, today many people don't have access to that. And so, um, for instance, if you want your child to go to a school other than the one that you're supposed to go to because you don't live in a single-family zone and want to find a slightly better school than maybe the one you're supposed to go to within the public school system – your only option is to move or is to be in a lottery. And I think what I would like to see is more of those areas be opened up to others so they would simply have access. Mm-hmm. I think that does mean densifying single-family zones to a certain degree. I think it does mean being better about transit. And so hopefully light rails expanse continues. I know people who maybe aren't uh, originally from Seattle feel more comfortable on a train than they might on a bus in terms of reliability and getting where they need to go. So ideally, both unlocking some of that land that's very precious and is the majority of our city and is a big reason why a lot of us maybe are here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think unlocking all of it is necessary. And then really focusing on transit and transportation and minimizing the need on the cars so that it'll just create a more livable environment. Good. And then um, we asked our guests to bring in something that's physical. Did you find anything to bring in? Uh, I did. It was hard. Uh, I don't pay a lot of attention to objects, uh, which is odd given my focus on design. Uh, it's a stone that my son painted for me that sits on my desk and it is there to remind me of the importance of family because architecture is a demanding, uh, enterprise, especially as a business owner and one who wants to advocate and have better change occur. Uh, it is orange, which is my favorite color. Okay. And that is, uh, just a nice connection back to earth and, and root and family. Awesome. Yeah. Well, Bradley, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Edward. It was a real pleasure. For our next episode, we're going to examine and explore connections between people and place. Susan Robb, a Seattle-based interdisciplinary artist and civic arts leader, will join us 
to show us how we can transform contemporary concerns like climate change, social isolation, and high-speed daily living into calming and creative opportunities to re-envision and reconnect with ourselves and with one another. Susan is brilliant and fun, and I'm sure you're going to enjoy the conversation. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We're excited to share with you that our podcast is now available on iTunes and Google Play as well. For more info, go to our website at ekreg.com, and there you'll find a link to both. Please send your questions or requests to edwardk at ekreg as well. And if there's a place that matters to you in Seattle, we'd love to hear about it. As always, thank you for tuning in. Join us next time to learn from others like Bradley Corey about the places that matter most in Seattle. Thank you. Thank you.